Well, please remain standing and turn with me, if you will, to Luke chapter 8. We're going to look at verses 40 through 56, verse 40 through the end of the chapter. Uh, if you're using one of the church Bibles, you'll find that on page 866. Luke 8, starting in verse 40. Beloved saints, this is our God's word. Let us give our attention to the reading of it. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue, and falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house For he had an only daughter, about twelve years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for twelve years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and they're pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceived that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. And while he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But but Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear. Only believe, and she will be well. And he went, and when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once, and he directed that something should be given to her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. The sins of reading of God's word. Let us ask our Lord's blessing on our time and his word this morning. Lord Jesus, you know the darkness of our minds and hearts. You know our fears and our doubts. Flood this darkness with the light of your grace and peace. Open our minds to your truth and grant us hope Grant us faith, increase our understanding, and allow us to receive you through your word. Let your love shine through the pages of your scriptures. May your spirit be with us as we read and hear. May he grant us that we might delight in all we encounter there. Amen. You may be seated. Does something sound familiar about this passage? And I don't mean have you heard it before. You probably have. You've probably read this. Probably heard it preached on. 
But does it feel like we've been here before in Luke's gospel? Or at least awfully close? We have a story about a a prominent religious leader who seeks Jesus out. We have a sick, dying child. And we have an, an uncomfortable encounter with a woman that polite society would prefer to avoid. In chapter 7, we had a centurion who had financed the building of a synagogue approach Jesus because his servant, possibly his illegitimate child, was dying. And that led directly to an episode about a widow whose only son had died and Jesus sought her out told her not to cry, and then raised her son back to life. Later in chapter 7, a Pharisee named Simon invited Jesus into his house, only to be interrupted by a sinful woman who came weeping, longing to see Jesus. Unable to face him, she, she stood behind him and washed his feet in her tears and dried those feet with her hair. And in each of these episodes, the emphasis wasn't just on the healing that took place, but faith. Your faith has made you well. I've never seen such faith, Jesus said. And it's hard not to hear the echoes in our passage today. The similarities are overwhelming. And we're left asking, why does Luke keep recording such similar stories? Is he just running out of material? I don't think that's the case. Or worse, is he reinforcing ancient stereotypes about men and women? Are men respectable, their names important, and women sinful, poor, messy, and forgettable? Well, that can't be. Because in each episode, it's it's the woman who's praised and given unique priority. No, something more is going on here. The repetition is meant to draw our attention to this repeating pattern. More than that, as we saw last week, God reveals who he is in these stories. And that's exactly what he's doing through these episodes. He's telling us about himself. He's telling us about his love. As we look at this passage this morning, what we're going to see is that God's love led him to allow his beloved son, his only son, to die in order to cleanse us from our sin. And and to see that, I want to spend a few minutes looking at the three characters in our episode. uh, Jairus, this this leader of the synagogue, the, the woman who's been hemorrhaging blood for 12 years, and then also Jairus' daughter, this only child, and what each of these characters contribute to the story. Then after that, I want to look at the greater backstory, God's story, and what he is trying to tell us about himself through this episode. And then finally, uh, in the last few minutes this morning, I want to meditate on what this means for us and how God is calling us to respond in faith. And so that's where we're headed this morning. As we look at our passage this morning, we see uh, this man, Jairus. He bears similarities to both the centurion in chapter 7 as well as Simon the Pharisee in chapter 7. Uh, like both of them, he's prominent. Uh, like Simon, he's a religious leader. 
And like both of them, he is recognizable, uh, a prominent member of society. Like the centurion, he is concerned over a sick and dying child. But Jairus somehow seems to blend all of the best characteristics of the centurion and Simon the Pharisee. Yes, he's a religious leader, but, but he, he shows humility. The humility like the centurion. He doesn't think twice about humbling himself before Jesus. So he falls at Jesus' feet and he begs, he pleads. He's driven by a love for this child and as he is, he, he lays all his pride aside and he does whatever it takes. What parent wouldn't? What parent wouldn't do anything and everything to help his or her child? It's just what we do. Any father who has stayed up late at night, unable to get in touch with his child, longing to hear those keys in the front door to know his child's safe. Any mother who has sat up through the night with an ill child, suffering illness, or any mother who's gone through the hell of losing a child, whether that be born or unborn. Anyone who's sat helpless, watching a child struggle to survive, simply longing to trade places, saying, Lord, take me instead. Trying to make deals, bargains. Any parent who has endured this knows what's going through the heart and the mind of Jairus as he comes to Jesus that day. Jesus has compassion on him, and they head toward the man's home. And yet along the way, there was a woman. For 12 years, as long as Jairus' daughter has been alive, this woman has been suffering a flow of blood that will not stop. No matter how many doctors she goes to, no, no matter how much money she spends, no one can help her. And now she's broke. No better off than when she started. But worse than being broke, she's ceremonially unclean. She's not free to worship God with the people. She can't enter the synagogue where Jairus spends every day of his life, takes for granted she she can't enter once. She's too unclean to be in God's presence. But what's worse is her, according to Leviticus chapter 15, that, that uncleanness is contagious. And so she's not free to socialize. People are not free to touch her lest they too become unclean. No hugs, no embraces, no human contact. She lives alone with no hope. Anyone who's ever felt unclean, unloved, or unlovable knows what she endures every day of her life. And like the sinful woman in the last chapter, she can't bear to look Jesus in the eye. She comes up behind him. She believes that if she she just touches him or even his garment, she'll be healed. And it's intriguing since Luke has told us that everyone in the crowd is pressing in and touching him. Everyone is touching him. But she believes that if she can just push her way through and get close enough, 
Not a word needs to be spoken. He doesn't even need to know she's there. She believes if she can just touch him, all will be well. So that's what she did. She touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately she was healed. Having done what she came to do, she simply wants to slip back into the crowd, disappear, head home, and start her new life. But Jesus has other plans. He always does. Who touched me, he asks. You can imagine everyone's confusion. A more appropriate question would be, who hasn't touched you? Peter, never being the one to miss an opportunity to state the obvious, says, Master, the crowds are pressing in all around you. Everyone's touching you. But Jesus insists someone touched him in a different way. Someone was healed. He felt the power go out of him and into her. Knowing that she could no longer hide, she came forward and confessed all. But she doesn't meet with a rebuke. There's, there's no anger. There's no disapproval. Instead, he addresses her as if she's family. He calls her daughter. And he told her that her faith has made her well. It was not touching Jesus. It was believing. Touching was just the physical expression of something much deeper. Her faith was in him, not in touching him. And this is what so many people miss. So many people place their hope in ceremonies, in trinkets, in artifacts. They place their hope in believing that things will get better, faith in faith. She placed her faith in Jesus. I need to get to him. I need him. And that made all the difference. She's made clean, no longer forbidden from, from human contact, no longer barred from God's presence, free to worship, free to draw near. He dismissed her with the sweetest words she could possibly have heard from her God. Go in peace. There's nothing between us but love. Nothing between us but peace. There are no more barriers. And all this time, Jairus is standing there with just one thing on his mind. His daughter. You can imagine what he might have been thinking. Twelve years she's been bleeding. What's one more day? One more hour, come back. Or, she's healed. Do we really need to stand here and stop and talk? What's the urgency, Master? My my daughter, she's dying. How would you have felt? How would you have responded? If Jesus put someone else above you, if, if he put your needs on hold to, to address someone else's who seemed, well, let's be honest, less urgent, less important. It's so hard to think about others when your own worries and fears are crashing in all around you. 
it's hard in those moments not to find fault with God. And most of us would empathize with Jairus if he was starting to get angry with Jesus. And while Jesus was still talking, the worst happened. Someone from Jairus' house comes up with the worst possible news. It's too late. His daughter, a tender age of 12, has just slipped from this life to the next. Every parent's worst fear. If I had just gotten to him sooner, if this this crowd hadn't pressed in and, and delayed us, if that woman, if that woman hadn't touched him, if Jesus had just let it go and not stopped and asked who, if, if, if. And yet now it's, it's too late. Where was it? See, this whole delay with the woman didn't catch Jesus off guard. It wasn't unplanned. It was intentional. The question is, is anybody paying attention? If Jesus can heal a 12-year-old, a 12-year affliction of blood, could he not also heal a 12-year-old? The woman believed. Would Jairus believe as well? Jesus says, do not fear, only believe and she will be well. Then going into the house and taking just a few with him, he went inside, took the girl by the hand, and he said, Child, arise. And as he did, her spirit returned to her, and she got up. And then to mark out that she's really alive, he tells someone, Well, bring her some food. Because the dead don't eat, only the living do. And once again, death did not have the final word. Once again, Jesus showed his power over death itself. That's what happened that day. That's the story Luke records for us. But it's not the whole story. There's a back story. We saw last week that, that Luke was written so that we might know who God is. More than what he is, he's telling us who he is. And the best way to show who someone is is through stories because stories reveal our hearts, stories reveal our character. And today's passage is no different because in these three similar episodes, in chapter 7 and 8, we have some common themes. We have a well-known, righteous man, often identified as a father. He's powerful, he's influential, And he's intimidating. He's typically connected with the synagogue where people go to meet with God. And while each one of these men is flawed, while each one has shortcomings, they are meant to reflect something to us. One who is righteous, who dwells in the temple, who is the wielder of all power and as intimidating to approach as they come. They are reflections of the Father the Heavenly Father. That's why the overarching characteristic in these episodes begin and end with a father's love. 
Because despite how powerful they are, regardless of how intimidating they are, they are driven by a love for their children. They are willing to humble themselves. They are willing to sacrifice all for those they love. They are willing to serve. They tell us about our God, who is not just a king, but also a father. Through these episodes, God is telling us something about himself. But not just himself, he's also telling us something about us. The widow, the sinful woman, the woman of blood, they're all outcasts, forgotten, unimportant, at least unimportant to this world. But each catches the eye of our God. Each receives compassion. Each is valued by him. In each of these women, we are meant to see something of ourselves. As with the widow, we as a people were abandoned by our first husband, Adam, who left us without an inheritance, without provision, without protection. Like the woman in Simon's house, we have all sinned in ways that we don't want to admit don't want to recount. We don't even want to think about. We know what it is, like in our passage, to be unclean. And that no matter what we do, who we talk to, or how much money we spend, we can't make it better. These women aren't meant to be pitied. They're meant to reflect to us who we are and how we feel. We're supposed to encounter them and sit on the edges of our seats, waiting in anticipation because if there's hope for them, there's hope for us. The question we go into each passage with is, is there hope? Is there healing? Is there a way back to God? And it all comes down to a child. Twice in these stories, a child dies. And in both cases, we're told it was an only child. you got to love the details. That language should strike us. We all know John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. This is what our creeds and our confessions quote regularly, that, that Jesus is the only begotten son of God. But just in case we miss it, Luke has already found a way to connect Jesus to this little girl. If that age of 12 sounds vaguely familiar, it's because we've already come across it in Luke's gospel in chapter 2. When Jesus was 12, his parents had an episode not unlike Jairus's. He disappeared and they feared the worst. For three days they looked as their sense of dread continued to grow. And then on the third day, he was returned to them. And we saw then and we see now that all of this keeps driving us back toward the cross. Because in the not too distant future, our Heavenly Father would be in the very position Jairus was in. His son would be on the verge of death. And his son would cry out, Father, if there's any way to spare me, if there's any way to save me from this, this pain, this agony, this misery, this death, let it be so. 
But to save his son would mean ignoring the woman, the church. If he helped his son, he couldn't help us. If he, like Jairus, had only his son in mind, if he was unwilling to stop and help a widow, a sinner, an unclean woman, then only his son would be with him in heaven. Because the only way for God to save sinners was to sacrifice his own son in their stead. The only way to stop our blood from flowing was to allow his to flow on the cross. The only way to make us clean was for Jesus to take our filth upon himself. The only way to spare our lives was to surrender his own. The price to rescue orphans and adopt us as his own children was the cost, the price of his only begotten son. And so the heavenly father did the unthinkable. He suffered what the widow in chapter 7 and what Jairus in our passage suffered, the loss of his only child. He did not keep death from coming to the one who meant the most to him. He let death have its victory, at least for a while. And then on the third day, as he had done for the widow's son, as he now does for Jairus' daughter, he raised his own son from the dead. Because in God's family, death never has the final word. It didn't for Jesus the firstborn, and if you are his son, if you are his daughter, it won't for you either. So the remaining question, the only question is, where is healing found? What does it take to be forgiven? Where is cleansing to be received? What does it mean for you to touch Jesus and to be healed like the woman in our passage? Well, we're not left guessing. Twice, verses 48 and 50. Your faith has made you well. Only believe and she will be well. It's the same as we saw in the other episodes as well. Chapter 7, verses 9 and 50. It's the same thing over and over. And isn't that how John 3.16 ends? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. All God requires is that you trust him. Not in ceremonies, not in trinkets, not in artifacts, not in believing things will get better, faith in faith, but believing in Jesus, that that he has done everything necessary to rescue us. That if you can just get close enough to him, everything will be okay. But we don't have to get physically close. We get close by believing. We draw near to him through faith. That that reality is pressed home to us in the Lord's Supper this morning. It does three things. Well, it does more than that, but I want to hit three today. First, it reminds us that though we cannot see Jesus, he is no less present with us this morning than the bread and wine are before us at this table. We're reminded of Jesus' words with which we opened our worship service. I am with you to the end of the ages. The first thing the Lord's Supper does is remind us that our God is with us this morning. We have drawn near. 
The second thing it reminds us is that physically touching something is not what's important. You could touch this or not touch it and have benefit or no benefit. Paul reminds though the Corinthian Christians in his first letter to them that some of them had died because they took the Lord's Supper without faith. They thought that the power was in the bread and the wine. If they could just touch it, eat it, take it, receive it, all would be well. They placed their hope in the bread and wine and not the one it represented. They did not eat in faith and they paid with their lives. So the Lord's Supper is a weekly reminder to us that the only way to life is to believe in the one who bled and died for us. Finally, the third thing it reminds us of is that those the Lord invites to eat have been given life. The dead don't need food. Beloved, you were dead in your sins and trespasses, but you have been made alive together with Christ. And when he takes a child's hand and says, Arise to new life, he says, Someone bring them some food. As he did with that girl in the house of Jairus. Every week he brings you food to remind you, you aren't dead anymore. You have the spirit, you have been made alive. It assures us that if we draw near to him by faith, if we have touched him by believing that we are saved. And it's a promise that even if death should come before the Lord returns and you lie in that grave, that it won't be forever, that one day you will hear your Savior's voice come and say, Child, arise. And please pray with me. Heavenly Father, you know our fears and our doubts. We see our sin, our filth, we see our failures, and we doubt. We doubt that you could love us, that you could forgive us, that you could make us pure again, that you would be willing to be seen with us. And so we thank you for your word, for this reminder that you love us as a father loves his children that you are willing to pay the ultimate price to show us forgiveness, to cleanse us, to shower us with love. Teach us to see as you see. Teach us to believe. Grant us the faith to trust your word more than our doubts, we pray. Amen.